Marcellus was on guard duty. He was guarding the castle Elsinore. It was the middle of the night, and he caught a vision. This vision was of a ghost. The ghost was fully dressed in armor, seeming like he wanted to go to war. He looked more closely and realized that this ghost was the ghost of the king of Denmark. As Marcellus considered this apparition, he said this famous phrase, there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. What was rotten? The king had been assassinated by his son Hamlet's uncle so that that uncle could seize the throne and seize the queen. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. This morning as we go into 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to encounter sexual immorality And it's sexual immorality of a type that was sin, undoubtedly, but it was also rejected by the Greek society of that day. And furthermore, was illegal, according to Gaius' institutes. This wasn't just Jerry Springer or Maury Povich fodder to pull you in to turn on the TV on a weekday afternoon. This was shocking, shocking to the society around the Corinthian church, even though Corinth itself was a city of grave immorality. What was this sexual immorality? A son was having sex with his father's wife, his stepmother. This is heavy. And lest the familiarity, perhaps, that you might have with this text lets you just gloss over the heaviness of this sin, would you just consider for a moment, maybe even in your own recollection from the last few weeks or a couple of months, high-profile Christian figures whose sexually immoral behavior has been exposed, has come to light, has been made public. How do we respond to something like that? Admittedly, I would just kind of going through the Rolodex in my own mind of of things that I've heard or read about in the last few months, sometimes you think, well, that doesn't really surprise me. And one in particular recently is extremely surprising. And I pray that it's not true. See, this sort of sin that can infiltrate the believer, and infiltrate his church ought to cause us to mourn, to sit in silence and weep. But that's not the whole situation in Corinth, is it? We've been walking through chapters 1 through 4 leading up to today, and We know more about Corinth than just this sin. So, hopefully you've turned there to 1 Corinthians 5. I actually want to start a little bit earlier than that and go a little beyond that to give you a little fuller context of how 1 Corinthians 5 fits in the flow of what Paul is writing to this church. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. Paul writes this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. How you not, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law? before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Heavy sin, sexual immorality. A man has his father's wife. I encourage you to think back to some that you might know, stories you might know, experiences that you might have that bring this heaviness to your own mind and heart.
But the thing is, here in Corinth, it's not that this sin has just now come to light. It's that this sin has not been dealt with. In fact, it seems to have been celebrated in some way. That there's a boasting that goes along with this. Now, perhaps that boasting is the fact that this man was a leader in the church. Perhaps he was part of the factions. Maybe he was one of the kind of undercover guys that claimed one of the upper guys, one of the apostles, as their figurehead. But maybe he was really the guy in charge of that group. Perhaps. Maybe that's where the boasting came from. We don't know for sure. But what we do know, because Paul says it emphatically, is instead of boasting, they should have been mourning. This situation should have caused incredible stress in the local church. Yet it obviously is not. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. How is Paul handling the Corinthians here? Well, the reason I went back to chapter 4 is to help us understand that Paul is disciplining them as children. He says, I'm coming. How should I come? With the posture of the rod or with a gentle spirit? Hoping that they will respond to his words so that he can come with a gentle spirit and not the rod. How does he handle them as a father? Well, for one, he exposes their ignorance. There's a a Greek phrase that means, do you not know? Okay? It's only used nine times in the entire New Testament. James uses it once, and Paul uses it once in Romans. The other seven times are all in 1 Corinthians 3 through 9. This is significant. Significant because Paul, as a father, is saying, kids, you are foolish. You think you're wise, but you are foolish and ignorant. The Corinthians' pride is so-called knowledge, and it was harming their own church. Paul's rhetorical questions are meant to highlight this ignorance and call them to change. Their knowledge had puffed them up, but they were immature and wise. So much so that Paul addresses them all as the church, but if you were really on the ground there in Corinth, it would be hard to understand who was actually regenerate and who was not. Who was actually changed by the Spirit and who was not. What a confusing church to be in. Paul calls them to remember who they are, and that in itself is a test. Will you remember who you are? If you really are who you are in Christ, you will remember. If you are not, you will not. By correcting them as a father and exposing their ignorance, he is seeking to impart what is greater than their supposed knowledge. He is trying to impart spiritual wisdom, the mind of Christ. But we know as we've been going through these last few chapters, it's not just their wisdom that they're puffed up about, it's about their power, their influence. Well, Paul, as their father, says, listen, you think you're powerful, you're actually weak. Spiritually weak. Spiritual babies, as he has said earlier on. So he is rousing them from their complacency to actually act in kingdom power. 14 verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, in actual action. This is another test of their kingdom belonging. Are they actually of the kingdom? Are they truly saints? And if so, which ones are? Those of the Spirit, they will respond to Paul's exhortation to action, and they will purge the evil person 
from among them. Paul is going to address a whole slew of issues as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. Why does he choose, choose this one first? Because something was rotten in the church at Corinth. A member of the body there who called himself a brother was full of sinful gangrene and the very survival of the body was at stake. Can we get the slides up there? Or are they up there already? Thanks. I'm going to present two questions to help us work our way through the text and kind of divide it into two areas because there is this reality that something needs to change, and that change is amputation. But there is also the reality of renewal. In order for this church to move from sickness to health, amputation must precede renewal, and it will. The first question then is this, how should a church respond to an unrepentant sinner with amputation? Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know? Do we not know? Sin spreads. It's been that way from the beginning. Eve sins, Adam sins. Cain sins, everyone sins. It's the reality of depravity. Sin spreads through people. Sin spreads through communities. Our flesh longs for the disease in some perverse way. You know it in your own life. I know it in my own life. When I give in to a particular temptation, that sin begins to give it an inch, take a mile. Within the church, sin corrupts the body with malice and evil. And that sin, as it begins to infect their own spiritual vision, distorts how they even see themselves. How else could they see a higher priority in their divisions instead of their unity in Christ? Part of what's going on here is Paul is going to refer back to the Old Testament, to the Passover. The Passover was the time when Israel, after having been in Egypt for over 400 years, is rescued. The plagues have come through Moses, and God has enacted his rescue plan. And he tells Moses, go and tell the elders to tell the people, this is what you are supposed to do. You need to go and clean your houses of leaven, of yeast. And then you are going to take a perfect lamb and you are going to sacrifice that lamb and then take the blood and put it over the lentils of your house. Why? Because the destroyer is going to make his way through Egypt and all the firstborns will be killed except for those who have the blood over the doorpost. The interesting thing is when you go back to Exodus 12, the way that that chapter is structured is there's a description of those instructions here like in the present day elders hearing it from Moses, elders passing it on to the people and then there's a repeat of it at the end of the chapter. But right in the middle of it, it's a sidebar. Moses, writing the Pentateuch through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, steps aside knowing that the people that are actually reading this are not the people that were leaving slavery. They are the people of Israel trying to figure out what it means to walk in the covenant. And he takes a break from the narrative and he says, listen, this is the Passover festival meant to be celebrated forever and ever and ever. But what you need to be careful to do is to cleanse your house of leaven and then not to eat any bread with leaven 
for the entirety of the festival. If you do, you will be cut off from the people of Israel. Cut off from the people of Israel. It's, it's kind of a nondescript punishment. Cut off can mean some places in the Old Testament, like literally cut off and killed. Other times it can be put out of the community. Either way, there's this reality that if you are going to belong to the people of God and celebrate the Passover year after year, generation after generation, forever and ever and ever, taking care of sin is a big deal. Do you not know sin spreads? Second, do you not know saints are judges? Saints are judges. Listen to the, the, the verdicts that Paul proposes here. They're all synonymous. Remove from among you. Deliver this man to Satan. Cleanse out the old leaven. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a big responsibility. How could Paul be putting this on this incredibly immature, right? Immature church. Because do you not know? Saints are judges. Remember what I read from 6, 2, and 3. Hear this again. Do you not know, there it is again, that the saints, those who are made holy in Christ, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? This is something that we don't talk about probably nearly enough. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are so justified in Christ, so justified in Christ, that we are actually able to take part as co-judges with Christ at the end of days. That is unspeakably amazing. That our identity would be so changed by Christ's death, the death of the judge himself, that all those who are in him will be co-judges, will participate in judgment with him. So Paul is saying, here's your future reality so are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3, do you not know, there it is again, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, I know that some of you are saints. And those of you who are saints, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Full stop. There will be a day when Christ will complete his work in you, and you will participate with Christ himself in judging the world. So how does this play out in the church at Corinth? Do you not know? Saints, you saints are judges. You should, you can and you should remove, deliver, cleanse, and purge. You are fully capable of judging rightly. And you might say, how? I make bad judgments all the time, personally. And I'll raise my hand to that too. I made bad judgments this morning. How could God entrust to us judgment within the church? Look at verse 4. This is how. When you are assembled. See, Paul is calling them to assemble together to seek the Lord and to have the mind of Christ. He wasn't leaving this to a pastor. He wasn't leaving this to the elders. He was calling the church together to assemble and judge. What else does he add to this reality of this assembled group of saints? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
So this wasn't just, hey, let's get off to the side and let's just talk about this. I mean, really, that's when gossip reigns, right? When you're just kind of like talking about situations in the church, but you're not actually assembled together to deal with situations in the church. He's saying here, assemble together in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is there with you, and you are defined by him. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. What does he mean by that? There are a few different interpretations of this. I think what Paul is trying to get at, not that, because he wasn't with the Corinthians right now, he made that clear in chapter 4, he is planning on coming with them, is Paul's spirit somehow leaving his body to then be there with them? No. Paul's a man. I believe what he's saying is this. Paul recognized his apostolic authority. This was given by Christ to him on the road to Damascus. He recognized that the things that he did, the things that he wrote, were inspired by the Spirit. And so he's saying, listen, listen to my injunction, not just as friendly advice from your spiritual dad, but as the weightiness of this must happen and carry that weightiness, my Spirit, into the meeting together. So you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. My spirit is present. This is the apostolic authority that we still have in Scripture. With the power of our Lord Jesus. Power of our Lord Jesus regularly means the spirit of Christ. So here we've got the Corinthians gathering together saying, this is what Paul says. He says we should judge and that we should believe his judgment. We are called together in the name of Christ. We belong to him and we need to act like it. And the Holy Spirit is filling us. We are his people. He is present in us, a temple for the worship of God. Saints are judges. Do you not know? At a really practical level here, talking to us as Edgewater, this is why we really value congregationalism. Okay? This is why Bill and I do not just make willy-nilly decisions, just kind of on our own, or pick out people and say, discipline-worthy amputation worthy. Let's, let's make this happen. No, that doesn't even happen at the elder level. If you're wondering how this sort of stuff works in our church, it works through the congregation, through the people of God, the members, understanding that they have scriptural authority, Holy Spirit authority, gathered in the name of Christ, and are told to assemble in order to handle sin. As a congregation, we have the authority and the responsibility to discipline. How well should a church respond to this amputation process? Not to associate, not even to eat. Look at 511. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. This disassociation admittedly causes discomfort. It should bring to mind to you right now, so what do I do if I, if, if I would disassociate, or we as a church would disassociate with so-and-so or ever, how do I then interact with them? That's a good question. Paul gets pretty clear. He says, don't associate with them. Don't even eat with them. Paul, ironically, is calling them to divide. He's been talking so far throughout the letter, don't be divisive. He's now saying, there is a right division to make. You must divide. You must judge rightly with decisive and united corporate action. 
And you say, but I, I don't know, what, what, what is Paul really getting at here? Does it mean that I can never talk with someone again? I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about. I think in a, in a practical way, he's saying here, don't associate, don't have official associations with someone that calls himself a brother. You don't want to be relationally linked with them in such a way that others will look at them and associate you and Christ with them because they are truly not a brother. Don't even eat with them? Well, hospitality is a big deal. It was back then. Inviting someone into your home was a big deal. Consider what it looks like to not associate with someone in our culture today. Does it mean that you unfriend them on Facebook? I don't know. Does it mean you never text them? I don't know. Does it mean you don't play fantasy football with them? I don't know. We have to work through those things with wisdom, and I think those are right conversations to have with one another. But I would say this. Walk wisely. Walk with discomfort. And walk with intentionality. So that if you say, you know, this isn't just my supposed sister in Christ. This is actually my flesh and blood sister. How do I interact with her? Well, Lord, give me wisdom to be able to not just be fluff-fluff with her. If the church has amputated her from the church body, they have given her over, delivered her over to Satan. That's a big deal that her spirit may be saved. Her flesh corrupted, her spirit saved on that day. That's a huge deal. So our conversations should reflect the gravity of the situation. Lovingly reflect the gravity of the situation. Well, I think one other part here is that Paul is also saying when he says don't even eat with them, in Corinth, communion was linked with a meal. We'll get to that later on in the book. But he's also saying here, listen, this is a, this is a church disassociation where communion is not a thing for them. They are actually not in co-union with the church anymore, and they're also not in co-union with Christ. It's a big deal. This is a fight for gospel identity, brothers and sisters, for the survival of the church, revival of true worship and corporate witness, to the power of the gospel to change people, to actually change people. And consider this irony. The unbelieving community around Corinth, around the church at this time, in Corinth, they would have seen a united church. Even though Paul has already been saying, inwardly you are divided, they would have seen them as a united church, all under the banner of brothers. But because this brother has been allowed to stay in sin, the identity of that united community is now being altered. This is a relatively new identity within Corinthian society. Those Corinthians are trying to figure out who these brothers are, and all of a sudden they realize, well, one of those brothers has been sleeping with his stepmother for quite some time, and he continues to go to to worship with them. He continues to eat with them. He continues to do business with them. And that must mean that that particular sin, as abhorrent to us as it is as Corinthians, is okay with them? Interesting. Do you see how the witness of the gospel begins to be shaded and missed? when sin spreads within a body. The church was being redefined by this sin. So lastly, in this amputation, you are to deliver him to Satan that his spirit may be saved. This is not cancel culture coming to the church. Can I say that again? This is not cancel culture coming to the church. This is a desire for redemption culture being remembered in the church. 
This is hope for this brother's, this so-called brother's repentance, that he may be saved in the day of the Lord. His flesh needs to be refined, even destroyed. Perhaps he will die. But may the Lord save him even before whatever the future holds. This is the last straw that has brought them to make this decision of amputation, but hopefully it's not the end of the story. Can God bring repentance to someone who is out of the church? Absolutely. Because all of us originally were out of the church. None of us were in Christ. The power of the Spirit to bring us to, re- to repentance and faith is still at work and can be at work in this so-called brother. Anyone who has experienced God's mercy in their own life can with great certainty confess, yes, there still is hope. If, if they had, for example's sake, if they had taken off, the, if this brother was the arm He was an important part of the body. He was loved. He was appreciated. Yeah, he had this thing about sexual immorality, but he gave a lot to the church, leadership-wise. He was rich, perhaps, so he he helped the church out. We, We survived. Maybe he even hosted them in their home. We don't know exactly, but for some reason, they were not addressing this gangrous arm. Would God be able to take that gangrous arm that is there on the table of spiritual surgery and reattach it? Absolutely. But there would be no gangrene left. He would renew and bring to redemption. Before we get to our second question, uh, you might be asking this, like who should a church remove from among them? Jonathan Lehman, he's from Capitol Hill Baptist Church out in um, D.C., he, 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 he says, here's some ways to think about this sin that can lead to amputation. It needs to be, and we see this in the text here, outward sin. Okay? See, you shouldn't say, listen, he's prideful. I know he's prideful. Or she's greedy. I know deep down she's greedy. Eh, really? Do you? You only know those things if they somehow come out, right? And Jesus assures us that all that is hidden will come to light. So let's not be on a witch hunt where we're trying to get everybody's secret heart issues brought out to the light for the sake of seeing who should be removed from the body. But when there is outward sin that is then also serious sin, that is enough to discredit a profession of the faith, we need to consider removing them. And then here's the most important part. It's unrepentant sin. It's something that has been brought to light. It's out in the open. It is serious. And then that individual refuses to turn from it. If we understand the Holy Spirit as being the one who fills the Christian, then the Holy Spirit is continually doing a work of sanctification in the Christian, bringing their sin to light and kindly drawing them into repentance. If there is someone who says, you know what, I'm good. This is just kind of me. This is what I do. That person, by their words, by their unrepentance, is proving they're not about Christ. His sins, he catch this, his sin was ultimately, I mean, his sin was the sexual immorality, but the the true camel that that broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back in this is that he was unrepentant. He was unrepentant. But I want you, just in case you're thinking, you know what? Thankfully, whew, thankfully, sexual immorality is not a big deal for me. To that, I would say, okay. Um, especially in the culture that we live in today and the flesh of us. But Paul doesn't just leave it with that category. Would you look at verse 11 again with me? I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone. And then he begins this other list that these are also outward, 
serious and can be unrepentant sins. Guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or as an idolater, a reviler. A reviler is like a hater. A consistent hater. A drunkard. Or a swindler. And swindler is meant to mean a little bit more towards the extortion end of things. See, this then gets into like business practices. It gets into worship practices. It gets into what does it look like to be a Christian in a pagan society when idolatry is easily available and may even be where those Christians came out of. Do I go back to my idolatry because it served this purpose in my business life or my family life? Do I use my power to extort from someone? Tempting. Does drink or do drugs make me a drunkard? See, while Paul uses this reality of sexual immorality in the church as this example, and it's so important to handle this first, he doesn't just leave it with sexual immorality. He brings this, these other serious, outward, and unrepentant sins into the list to, I would just say this, not let any of us skirt away without considering where our hearts are. And here's the kicker. This guy calls himself brother. He calls himself brother. Before I get to the second question, I, 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 would you test your heart right now? Are you, are you saying yes, yes, yes to this? Or are you saying pump the brakes? Everybody should be able to be part of the church, right? It doesn't really matter what our behavior outside of the church is. Once we, once we ask Jesus into our hearts, then we are Christians forever, right? Regardless of our behavior, right? Regardless of our sin, right? This is way too harsh. This is not redemptive. This is canceling, Pastor Andy. If you're pumping the brakes, I just want to ask, are you trying to handle God's word or are you willing to be handled by God's word? Maybe you have a misunderstanding of what it means to be amputated. Um, you may have heard of, heard of the word excommunication. Okay? There's a lot of history there with that word, with that term, with that action. Let me be clear. We could talk about excommunication being what happens in this removal here too. Um, but what people often think of an excommunication is like what the Roman Catholic Church will do when they excommunicate someone out of the church. They say, you are now damned. You're not a part of us anymore. You are now Damned. It's what Pope Pius X did when he excommunicated Martin Luther with his papal bull. Bull meaning there, there was something that was written. It wasn't, never mind. Um, we come at discipline or even the removal of people from membership at a church from a biblical understanding. It is, it is God alone who ultimately judges and his church warns of that judgment. They don't decide that judgment. To remove someone is not to damn them, but to be unable to affirm that Christ is in them. It's a spiritual judgment based on outward evidence of repentance. So maybe you misunderstand excommunication. Maybe you misunderstand the nature of the church. The church, according to Puritan William Gouge, is those who are inwardly and effectively by the Spirit, those who believe in Christ. We are people reborn. That, humili that, that, that mercy and grace reality brings great humility. 
We're people committed to one another, pilgrims together to the promised land. We're people of proleptic responsibility. Proleptic is future-looking. We want to consider one another's verbal profession and their manner of life to see if a profession in, in Christ and a manner of life match up. So this means oftentimes in the church, predominantly in the church, encouragement. Hey, have you been struggling with this or how are you doing? Let me just remind you, I want to listen. I want to love you. I want to know you well. And would you listen to me and know me well? And let's encourage one another to continue to follow Christ and let not sin remain in us. But sometimes warnings are warranted by the church. And if those warnings are not heeded, according to Matthew 18, those warnings end up leading, can end up leading to the amputation, the removal. Let's go to the second question, and this one is, brings hope. Because as every amputation is done, that it's done in the hope that the body will be saved and that there will be renewed health. And I believe that that's what Paul is pointing to here. How will a church be affected by amputating the unrepentant sinner from the body? Renewal. Renewal. Consider this. Sin has been halted. The gangrene has been stopped. The people are responding with mourning and repentance because they have seen sin more gravely. They have seen it more gravely in their own hearts. And they've also seen it more gravely within the body. This guy was guilty enough, but what about the guilt? What about the failure of the church to actually address it in him earlier? Oh God, forgive us and show us your mercy as a church. Righteousness in Christ has again been confessed. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We are righteous in him. That the, the assembled church has made a judgment and they have also looked forward to the judgment day when they, all those who are in Christ, the saints, will judge with Jesus. Consider what this brings about. Paul doesn't emphatically get it here, but I do wonder if he set this up to a certain extent. Except, you know, I don't think Paul set it up. I think the Spirit set this up. Because God was looking to renew the witness of the Corinthian church. He had told Paul back in Acts, there are many in this city that belong to me. The work was not yet done, but these people had to get together and they became united in doctrine and action. True wisdom, true power. They believed what was true and they acted on it. They put their foot in the ground and they said, no, this is where we're going to stop. Things are going to change around here and this guy as much as we love him and mourn for his sin and for our, compl our complicity in it, through our complacency, it will end now. And how did they do this? They were assembled. They were united. They were together. This was exactly the right issue to address first to reunify Corinth in the gospel. These factions were going to have to get together to do this. So they were going to address sin together. They were going to confess Christ together. They were going to judge rightly together. Which helps us see that the Spirit was working in them. Because this is exactly what Jesus says the Spirit does. He brings to mind sin. He brings to mind the righteousness of Christ. And he brings to mind the judgment. They were being revived by the Spirit. 
consider this. I, I want to go like one level deeper a little bit here for what is going on here and the hope for this radical surgery of amputation, that the renewal that it can bring. I want you, let's, let's try to appreciate the radical turn that was required of them here. Think on it. They had been boasting of sin. Celebrating it in some way. And now they have moved from boasting to condemning and removing the sinner. That doesn't just happen by good leadership. That happens through the Spirit of God. When a person or a church is utterly changed in their whole perspective on sin, that is a work of the Spirit. Only He could do such a thing. Yet with great joy, think of what this church was now experiencing within this assembled group. The arm has been taken off. But within that assembly, as they're talking, they're praying, perhaps they're debating. They're Corinthians. I wouldn't be surprised if they're debating. He's saying this, wise, gospel-centered leaders rise to the fore. They would have to if they were going to make this decision. Foolish leaders opposed to Paul's instruction would be exposed. Unrepentant sinners would see their own hearts and repent as the seriousness of judgment weighs on their souls. And unrelenting boasters would leave. This is a church that's growing in health, that's being renewed by the work of the Spirit, even through the removal of the unrepentant sinner. To finish up, would you just look at chapter 5, verses 7 and 8? Because this is the last part of this renewal, is these people are revived by the Spirit, but they're, re they're renewed in Christ-centric identity. Now, these verses are almost too amazing to really believe. The magnificence of grace. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is calling them to be a perpetual Passover people. The lamb has been sacrificed. There is no sacrifice left for sin. Christ is all. Because of him, in their identity, they are leaven free. They are pure. Celebrate it. Yet, as the festival occurred yearly within Israelite society, I think what Paul is saying here is, yes, you are free as Israel was freed from Egypt, yet you are to continue to be aware of the old leaven. Have sin on your mind. Keep short accounts with it. Maintain the purity of a perpetual Passover people. Free, free, yes, free to address their sin and kill it by God's Spirit. So he says, celebrate it not with the leaven of malice and evil. That's who you were. But this is who you are, a people that can celebrate the Passover with sincerity and truth. You begin having relationships where instead of dividing and comparing one another's points of view on things, you're able to sit down with, someone other, one, with one another and speak with sincerity. Do people speak with, to you with sincerity very often? Do you speak with them with sincerity? Do you speak to anyone that's not digital? 
I would encourage us, brothers and sisters, consider how we use our mouths. Do we speak with sincerity to one another? Or are we more full of fluff, fluff, jokes, sarcasm? Speak with sincerity and truth. This is the spirit-filled believer and the spirit-filled church. And what it does is this sincerity and truth within this renewed body then begins to emanate out of them. It begins to help them understand in a renewed way who the world is. Paul corrects them here and he says, listen, I'm not telling you don't do this to others. I'm telling you not to associate with those who are out in the world. I'm telling you to handle your business inside the church. So it corrects their posture toward the world. Don't judge them. God is already and will judge them, as he says in the last verse. So it corrects the Christian's posture towards the world. A world that, to hear one author say, the Corinthians were a not very persecuted church. They had lots of dealings in politics and commerce and in family and in a lot of ways in their society. And Paul's saying, great, you are meant to be salt and light. Seize the reality that you're not persecuted and roll with it. And go out in all wisdom and and effectiveness as you understand you're a person of gospel, sincerity, and truth. And engage the world. Engage the world and see what God does through you. But the sincerity and truth also corrects this posture towards these so-called brothers. As he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy Timothy 3, 5, have nothing to do with them. They have a form of godliness, but but they deny its power. If there's someone that you know and you're closely related with and they talk about being a brother or a sister, but there's no power of the Spirit in them, they have not been changed, be wary of significant relationship with them. What all this brings about is a Passover people, a Passover people that continually trust God's Word, they continually cleanse of leaven, and they continually trust the Lamb's blood. This is what it means to amputate and be renewed, to trust that God is renewing a people for himself. Two encouragements. Number one, if you see that something is rotten in the state of your soul, today, trust Christ. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. He alone is the rescue the just wrath of God. He alone knows the rottenness to its core and can heal it. You no longer have to be amputated. You can be part of Christ's body. What a beautiful place to be. If you are a Christian, I would encourage you in this. All of us struggle with sin. I would encourage you here and out there Press into the local body. If you are a Christian, as Bill said earlier, consider membership. You want to be as close to the people of God, as close to the people that are in the body as possible. Covenanting with them in a way where your sin can be addressed, you can be known, and you walk together in faithful pilgrimage. You want people in your life. We need people in our lives that will correct us when we need to be corrected. It's part of the responsibility of being a saint. And I'm going to read this paragraph here that's my last encouragement. We tend to do God's job. What's God's job? God judges those outside. We tend to do God's job. We need to do ours. Could this be why we are so ineffective, we being the corporate church? 
His power is invested in our loving consideration of one another, and that is our corporate witness. There's much to be said in the New Testament of individual gospel witness, yes. We talked a lot about it this last Tuesday. But it always is from or leads to the corporate witness of a local church. How much more spirit-infused power would flow through our corporate witness if we actually loved one another enough to address sin, have our sin addressed, and celebrate the Lamb with sincerity and truth.